we live in an age that if people don't see our idea and agree with it in this moment, we label them as soldiers of this apocalyptic feeling that we are against, it's really dangerous. And so I just think that type of language drives us away from seeing the good that's being done in the world. If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. Well, Nick, it's so great to have you on my podcast after being on your podcast, um, which hopefully you'll talk about during the interview. I feel like I don't really need to interview. In, I mean, I don't need to introduce you to our guests because you are the intro and outro of all of our podcasts. So you've actually talked about yourself before we even got started, which I know is one of your favorite things to do. I was hoping that I could just do this entire interview and just repeat the intro and outro over and over and over again so that people would just hear that same exact bit from me the entire time. I don't know if that would be interesting, but I thought we could try it. We could, but in fact, I'm going to try something. <laughs> okay. okay. Hey, but man, anyway, I'm excited. Real- Charlie, it was great to have you on my, my podcast. I will totally, I plan to pump that later, but you led with it, so that's cool. Well, go ahead. Right yeah. now, I mean, this is a very informal interview. No, I'd love for you to tell the guests uh, who are listening what it would, the podcast is about in general and what we spoke about, if you can remember, because for sure I can't. I'll, I'll do my best. I mean, I loved our interview. It was great. I mean, I should say, you know, you and I, became friends, I mean, probably 10 years ago now, close on. Yep. Um, So I'm going to give a little backstory first, uh, just to set the stage for for our conversation. But um, I heard Peter talking about the life you can save on KCRW in Los Angeles. I live in Los Angeles. I tweeted about it, I think. I got really excited about it. And I I committed to 5% of my annual income. Then I got connected. I got contacted by you know, one of your volunteers, employees. Was it Amy Schwimmer? I can't even remember. But somebody saw your tweet and said, oh, my gosh, an actor is talking about the life you can save. Right. We better see if we can corral him, something like that. Then they did a little more research and they were like, he, he apparently he's mildly talented. And so then I was like, oh, then they came. They were like, so mildly talented actor, Nicholas Diacon. <laughs> Just kidding. They were being nice to you when they said mildly. All of a sudden, I get a I get a, a message that's like the executive director of the life you can say would like to talk to you, and I was like, okay. So we called and we hit it off. We just started talking about what it was, and you're very passionate about the life you can save and the mission of the life you can save, and I was attracted to that mission. And you and I uh, have begun a consistent friendship over the years, and you know, happy to always help. And I love that you. Uh, you were in town. I came and spoke at one of your fundraising events, and then I had you in the studio. 
my podcast is called God and Other Delicacies. The and is an ampersand. It's, so the acronym is G-O-D. And I ask a core question, an inciting question, which is how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? So I'm really interested in personal theologies. I'm, in, I'm interested in pers- people's spiritual developments and how they define their existence in the world. What's the prism through which they see the world? How has that prism changed from what they were introduced to when they were young? And uh, you and I spoke a lot about your journey. And what I love about that, what I love about my show is that it gets to be about people's family life, their parents. You spoke a lot about your family life, some of the challenges in your home that you grew up with, some of the challenges with uh, that you've had to deal with a sibling and the ways that's affected you throughout the years and where you are at today. And you were, you know, you sort of define yourself primarily as, as a thoughtful atheist, but you gravitate to, you know, Buddhist philosophers like Thich Nhat Hanh and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a really lovely conversation and all of my conversations are like that. They're not dogmatic. And I think it's useful for me and I think it's useful for others to get to have windows into other people's theological lives because it's a tough question for us all to talk about with each other. You know, they're very emotional. They tend to be, they can be a very emotionally heightened and relatively defensive and protective conversations when we talk about each other's theologies, what we actually believe. It's like politics, but it's almost even deeper than politics. It gets into questions of truth, but you know, when you're listening to it on a podcast, you don't have to worry about them attacking you, you know? So, um, <laughs> not then so, anyway. Yeah. So anyway, that's my little shtick. That's my spiel about that. I think one thing that really is interesting maybe about me is that as a left wing quote unquote, thoughtful atheist, as you <sighs> put it, I'm very attracted to people who are very religious and have spirituality at the center of their lives. For example, our deputy director, Stacy Black, head of marketing, who you know of, who you haven't had the chance to meet yet, no. is a devoutly religious Christian. And she and I have become quite close. She's become like another daughter to me. And it's really interesting to talk about her view of Jesus and what Jesus means in her life. And for me to question her and for her to question me, although I have to say, I have said to Stacy, Stacy, how come you don't try harder to convert me. You don't try to convert me at all. And yet you believe embracing Jesus Christ is really a key to salvation. Why don't you do that if you care about me? And she says, simply in a very soft voice, the way she speaks, well, Charlie, that's just your choice, which is lovely, but interesting. But anyway, yeah, that's a a bit of a divergence, but the life you can save is about fighting the real horrible effects of poverty, particularly extreme poverty in the developing world. And I think that Having a spiritual orientation in thinking about this work is one way to do it. Having a political orientation and wanting to see structural change is another way of doing it. There are many ways we've found that people who come to the Life You Can Save and decide, gee, this is something I'm interested in, um, do it. Of course, we encourage people to read Peter's book, The Life You Can Save, which you can download on our website for free, which is really cool because we bought back the rights and uh, they can go to thelifeyoucansave.org. Or they could listen to it on Audible, and I did a chapter, didn't I? I don't remember. Did you? Yes, you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did a chapter. And I did too. But there are other people who are actually interesting who did chapters. Right, exactly. We talked Um, about this before we started, (laughs) that I'm I'm neither interesting nor influential. And Well, if people are still listening, 
<laughs> Maybe we've turned them all off by now, but I'd like to bring the audience a little bit closer to your personal story. All right, man. So can you feel free to go forward and backward, but I'd like you to tell all of everybody a little bit about how this kid from Nebraska became this adult in LA with a family and uh, a lot of responsibilities. If you don't mind, I'm going to start in the most present. I think I'm at an interesting point in my journey. It's a curious and open point, more open than I feel like I've seen my future in many, many years. I'm 43 and I've entered grad school again. I've never gone to grad school is what I should say. I've been back in college. I have bachelor's degrees that I went to at this sort of prototypical time. I graduated when I was 22. Now I'm back in a grad school. It's a divinity program and it's a Unitarian Universalist program. I, I won't plug all of that stuff, but the point is it's a very progressive religion. A part of it is that atheists or tend to refer to themselves as humanists in our world, they're a part of this religion. And I've been really engaged with the idea of trying, as my podcast speaks about, um, or sort of is a platform for, once I started doing the podcast, I realized there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. And I wanted to get better at understanding religion um, on a more heightened, more pluralistic and more inclusive sense from perspective, that is all those things. And so I've gone back to school. Just last semester, I had my New Testament class and I read the New Testament front to back for the first time in my life. And I did it with all the you know, textbooks and essays and writing all kinds of things. I just wanted to say that you know, bringing it back, it is, it is unsurprising that someone with a, a Christian location as the center of their spiritual framework would find the mission of the life you can save interesting. You know, poverty is one of the core messages, addressing poverty and being empathic and open to poverty and the oppression of poverty in your neighborhood or in your circles of influence is at the core of the life you can save. It's not a spiritual necessity, but it, it makes sense that you'd find a thoughtful atheist in a, and a driving and a driving Christian inside this same framework. So I was raised Roman Catholic in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm from a very white, middle-class, upper middle-class, suburban neighborhood of Omaha, Nebraska. I went to, I've been in private religious education my entire life. I went from kindergarten through eighth grade in a Catholic school. My high school was an all-male Jesuit education. Jesuits, for those who don't know, are a, a progressive order of Catholic priests who are primarily interested in education. They, there are a lot of institutions that are Jesuit, Georgetown. I went to Marquette University. That was a Jesuit institution. So I graduated with my degrees from there. I have a degree in theater, a degree in history. I had already started acting at that point. I had done a movie called Election when I was 17 in Omaha, Nebraska, which is its own story. But I happened to be acting in high school. Alexander Payne, who wrote and directed that movie, and, and anybody who's kind of inside cinema knows Alexander Payne at this point. He's a very influential American auteur. That was really his first major work, and I happened to just book a role in it. I mean, it was a sequence of crazy events that a 17-year-old in Omaha, Nebraska fell into, and it was my foot in the door. I got a, a an agent out of the deal, and I all that stuff, you know? So... Well, I don't like to say really nice things to you, but you were great in that movie, and I, I really liked watching it. Oh, I'll, I'll take that as my one nice thing this episode. You can. I probably <laughs> won't repeat it during this, thing, but it was good. If anybody gets a chance to see Election with Nick and Bro Matthew Broderick was in it, right? That's kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, it was anyway, crazy, man. I, mean, I was 
17. I, and it, it should be noted that, so I'm 17, that's 1997. This is pre-internet. So Omaha felt very far away. Omaha is still kind of far away from the epicenters of culture and particularly filmmaking in the United States. But Omaha is far advanced from that because of people like Alexander Payne, because of people in the independent music scene like Connor Oberst who have centered Omaha and kind of made Omaha a name in its own right. It's still a relatively small Midwestern city, but when I was 17, man, movies got to us like two weeks after they premiered in Los Angeles or New York. It was, it, you felt that separation. I one time ran into Matthew Broderick at a gas station after I'd met him. He was super friendly to me and he knew that I was in the movie with him and it was just jaw dropping. Like it was a crazy experience. So ramping up through that, I moved out after I graduated and I started working and I'm very blessed that I've had a career in Hollywood for over 20 years now. So that's like the basics. That's how I was raised. That's my religion. It was a conservative, relatively conservative Midwestern town. And I've been living in LA. I have a wife and a son and a dog that's sleeping next to me. And we have a lovely home and I'm, I'm grateful. You know, I'm at a point in my life where the business doesn't mean what it meant to me when I was in my 20s. And we can talk more about that if you want. I do want to talk more about that. I also wanted to talk a little bit before we get into that about what do you think some of the major influences on you have been in this period of time, particularly as it affects your view of morality, um, how people should be acting in the world um, towards other people. Um, but in general, wh what were the influences? Was it mostly your Catholic Jesuit teachings or were there other significant influences? When I think back at like the core developmental moments, it's impossible to extricate my Catholic location. And location is a word that we use a lot in school. It just, it, it's to really drive home that we all come from a different place. Even two people that live in the same neighborhood can have two very different locations, depending on the way they're introduced into the world, through their religious platform, through the relationship that their parents share, through illness in their family. All those things influence the way a person is introduced to the world and the way they view the world. So that's part of why I use that word. I was taught that to those who've been given much, much is expected. That's something my father used to say. I was raised going to Catholic mass twice a week, once in school on Wednesdays and once with the family on Sundays, all the way up until I left for college. So the messages, the core kind of modern Catholic messages of service, care for others. Then when in, I was in my Jesuit training, in school, it's very retreat oriented. So it's a very emotionally opening type of education. Young men are encouraged to get into retreat settings and share about their life. And sometimes I think it's kind of an extraordinary thing to do for young kids in their teens. It's not universally useful, but for me and many of my best friends, I mean, truly many of my very best friends, nearly all of them are, are, are people I went to high school with. I mean, I have many, many friends from many areas, but my very core friends are surprisingly still from that high school. And um, some of them live with me in LA. I mean, you know, live, it, they've, LA has brought them out here for different reasons. I mean, I'm not putting them up. Are you kidding me? Uh, we already talked about it. I'm not influential enough to afford a house that big. 
so those things are really important to me, right? So then I started getting into a non-Catholic philosophical framework in high school. I started finally learning about evolution and that started spinning me off in different ways. And I became more and more attracted to progressive ideas. In college, I was a Green Party fanatic with Ralph Nader and got really into the Green Party campaign and voted for him. I also spent a semester abroad in the Dominican Republic. And that was a retreat oriented, you know, it's a Catholic framework. I lived in the Campos, the little villages in the hills with people who had no running water, had batteries for light, you know, that they had lights that just had, you know, batteries, they would have to go down the, down the hill to go, you know, they had very little and they farmed, you know, their little plots. And it was some of the most extraordinary stuff I'd ever seen. It is integral to who I am. It's impossible for me to take that out of me either. I mean, it was so impressionable to be amongst that much poverty. Even in that time, I debated, should I pursue a profession of social justice or should I pursue my acting profession, which I loved and which I'd already had um, a foot in the door of? And, and again, because I can talk forever, I will just say that in my 40s, I'm finally finding myself being a, attracted again to that part, which is the social justice part, in ways that I had let go over the last 20 years when I was really kind of myopically focused on my acting career. I guess that's something that we have in common because in university, I was so focused on being an activist and working uh, with others to try to end the war in Vietnam and to promote racial justice. And I really feel like in many ways I abandoned that and came to the life you can save after reading Peter's book very late in life and reestablished a connection with the very values that were formative, even though intellectually I had maintained those values. I had done very little to do anything about creating a world in which there was more social justice. And reading Peter's book gave me a specific pathway, which is to try to help people living in poverty through very specific, highly impactful, cost-effective interventions that can accomplish a lot for individuals and communities and empower their livelihoods. It doesn't change the world. It doesn't create the kind of structural change that I once dreamed of being a part of. But it was a way for me to actualize things like you, I think, that were brewing in me, but I wasn't I wasn't acting on. And that's great. We do have another thing in common relative to your acting career I want to mention, which is you mentioned that it, during, I believe it was your first play, you forgot your lines and oh. you cried all the way home. I oh, remember yeah. reading that. And I did the exact same thing, although I didn't go on to become an actor. In my very first play, I played the role of an announcer and I forgot all of my lines. Oh. And it was pathetic, really pathetic. I remember crying for a long time after that. So oh my acting careers got, got started in exactly the same way, although yours flourished a little bit more than mine did. Um, anyway, well, I'm proud of, of myself in, in, in when I think back on that story, which gratefully is not one that's in the forefront of my mind much anymore. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't repressed it exactly, but I was 11, I think. And it was a comedy I was doing in the summer in this improv group, but we did a play at the end. And I was like cast as the villain. So also what was hilarious is the villain was like actively weeping 
on stage trying to get through. <laughs> People were like feeding me the lines. I had totally just melted down. And I have this, I have this memory of going off of stage off of at some point after one of the scenes that I, you know, this had happened in. I just remember like classic hitting my head against the wall. Just like <laughs> that explains a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, whatever I, I, I got back up on the horse, you know, that's, that's the businessman for sure. Yeah. And that has carried through, I think, throughout your career, because clearly COVID was a very difficult time for many, many actors and including you. And uh, yet, in spite of your now dual career, if you will, between becoming uh, a theologian of sorts um, and still maintaining your acting, it's not an easy thing to do. And of course, let me talk about your family in a minute. Before I get to your family and how you manage the obligation to your family, your community, and your dual careers, which maybe you don't see as separate from uh, your being a theologian or a social activist, what do you when you view the world today? I'm curious as to what you see as the three most pressing problems. It could be two, it could be four. I use the number three. If you just look at things through your current lens, I think it's obvious that there are these issues that do kind of border on an existential crisis, things like climate change and global conflict. But one of the things I think that I, I like about The Life You Can Save, and it's a reflection of, of this thing I'm about to say, which is that this element of um, apocalypticism, this element of, of the apocalyptic language of humanity, which is, it's ancient, you know, it's an ancient language. We've spoken in ways of believing every generation of humans has a population of these generations that speak about the crisis of their time is the end of all crises. We cannot imagine that the world will exist beyond this generation if this issue is not taken care of. It is not to say that there has not been just absolutely immense tragedy, horror, violence, and destruction all throughout human history. But because of the way technology works today, because of the way that we can get into, we can hear these voices of apocalypticism at the touch of a button, the algorithms feed it back to us if we are attracted to that language. And it, it makes it feel like those perspectives have more weight today than I think in other past historical frameworks. I just think it's really detrimental for us to lose sight of the progress of history. It's not to say that progress is by any means, progress is never achieved. We're never done. There's oppression everywhere in our country, across the world. There's inequality and um, discrimination, all of that stuff. But if you just take some of the stats in Peter's book, for instance, you can see that we've made immense progress in the eradication of extreme poverty, you know, from the height of when we started taking these statistics to where we are today. There's so much more to do, but we forget how extraordinarily positive the Industrial Revolution and, and our continuing global awareness, how that has limited the size and scale of war since the world wars, we're, we're, we're limiting the size and scale. Hello, I'm Dr. Wendy Harrison, CEO of Unlimit Health. 
Parasitic diseases damage the lives of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa. And here at Unlimit Health, we have supported over 1 billion treatments for these diseases. And we're working with governments, health ministries to eliminate them altogether. There are a few more effective ways to support global health. And the funds raised for us by The Life You Can Save are crucial to this work. So please visit thelifeyoucansave.org forward slash musings to see how, even with a small contribution, you can make a big difference to many people's lives. Thank you. When you say we're limiting the size and scale, since I assume World War II, you're saying which accounted for 50 million deaths, more than all the history before it, um, including World War I. Are you saying we're limiting the scale because of sort of this terror of nu- use nuclear weapons is now limiting the scale? I think so. And then also it's an economic war now, right? We, we fight economically with each other. I think there seems to be an understanding that we understand the power of, of nuclear conflict. I'm not an expert in this arena, but what I will say is I feel that this idea that we live in an age that if people don't see our idea and agree with it in this moment, we label them as soldiers of this apocalyptic feeling that we are against, it's really dangerous. And so I just think that type of language drives us away from seeing the good that's being done in the world. And I think there's a lot of good that's being done in the world. I think that the technology shows us every single thing that's bad all the time. It has availability of everything that's bad everywhere, from the neighbor who murders another neighbor to global conflict. But we didn't have that access before. That's always been there. That stuff's always been around. And I think that one of my biggest concerns is how do we make progress towards keeping an open dialogue with people that we don't think share upon first impression, our viewpoint on the world. I think one of the ways that I will work to try to bridge gaps is to not use apocalyptic language, to not use cataclysmic language, to use language where just because someone disagrees with me politically or disagrees with me about the effects of climate change, there might be middle ground where we may not see it at the moment. That's really interesting how you highlight the apocalypse as historically consistent with the things in the past. Of course, now when it gets highlighted, it could be highlighted in black and white, or it could be highlighted in color, or it could be highlighted every day through many, many devices that you own. And I think it is true that we all tend to think more apocalyptically, particularly with the war going on in the Ukraine and things that what's going on really all over the place, which is what's driven me to do a little bit, which is hopefully helping a lot of people living in poverty and and saving lives. How do these problems affect your day-to-day life and what you're choosing to do? I'm just going to repackage something I just said, but you can be rich and affect a lot of change if you want to do that. We'd love rich people to give a lot of money to the life you can save and the charities they support, right? That does a lot of good. I'm not- That would be nice. I'm not rich, you know? My acting career is an ebb and flow acting career. I've had high moments. I've had low moments. I came to the life you can say when I was identifying myself as an atheist. I wouldn't consider myself dogmatically religious now, but I have a different view of what religion means as I've been able to free myself from the the religion I was 
raised in and those constructs, and I have a new theology, you know, I have a new practice. It still kind of mirrors a, an atheistic viewpoint, but I think that for me, I am trying to locate what I can do in my everyday life. And a little bit of that is giving money to charities I care about. I have a specific situation where I occupy a center point between conservative dialogue and progressive dialogue. I come from a conservative home, conservative platform, conservative community, and I understand their concerns and their values, the things that are, are beautiful about what I see in those communities and the things that I disagree with. I also am on the other side of that. I live in Los Angeles. I've been here for 20 years. I'm a part of a very, you know, openly progressive um, industry. And so I feel like part of what I'm really interested in engaging with right now is how do I continue to promote and live out a values of communication and openness? That's basically what I feel. You know, how it affects my life? You know that. That's how it affects my life. I'm trying to live in a way where I'm modeling for others and for myself, for my family, uh, how to be loving in the world. Well, you've certainly taken lots of opportunities to help the life you can save, not only supporting this podcast with reading the introductions, including the one about yourself, <laughs> but also uh, the end of the, the podcast. And you've, you've done a number of things for the life you can save, including contribute money over the years, which I really appreciate. But it sounds to me like in addition to including the life you can save as one part of how you're going to actualize your values, it sounds like you might be heading to the pulpit in a way, because well, yeah. it seems like it would be a natural convergence. And I don't mean to put words or ideas into your into your head, but it seems like there's a convergence between being an actor and being a communicator of connection, which is how I hear what you're saying. You're not wrong. I'll go into it more. I mean, I'm in a seminary program. So when I graduate, I'll have a master's degree, but I'll also be able to sort of pass the board essentially and become a minister. I'll be an official Reverend Nicholas D'Augusto in about three or four years because I'm going part-time. Gosh, I won't be able to talk to you. Sure you can. I'll be so the exact esteemed. same way, making the same dirty jokes, uh, uh, the ones that I can't necessarily say all the time in this interview. I'm in a very open place with my future, and it's an exciting place and it's scary. You know, whenever you get to this stage and you or I, a person like me, embarks on, and I'm sure you went through this process, but I'm pursuing something in a way that is not connected to what I've been spending the, my previous 40 years doing, previous 30 years doing. Well, I've certainly done that. <laughs> but also, you're not wrong that these things thread together. I've always been interested in this conversation. I have always talked about religion on shoots, I've always, whenever I'm hanging out with people, I ask them how they were raised. You know, in every movie I've shot, in every TV show I've been on, I ask the people around me, what do you believe in? What do you, what do you do? How do you live this life? I just thought that was something I was interested in for a long time. But then recently it became an imperative. Honestly, man, I got old, <laughs> you know? I got old, I got married. Don't tell I had me a that, Nick, all right? I really don't want to hear that. <laughs> You're almost exactly 30 years younger than me, so. Yeah, man, well, you know? But anyway, I can understand that at 43, you seem old. I remember that Diana, my wife, who I've been with since high school, um, told me that her biggest and most difficult birthday was her 40th birthday, ah. interestingly enough. Well, and mine was that, also that. that, that was her I didn't hardest think it would birthday. Be, but mine was 2020 
in the in the beginnings of the depths of COVID. It was a particularly <laughs> hard 40th. But yeah. um, you're not wrong, man. And I also, I, I was required to write my first sermon uh, during my New Testament class. So of all the ironies to me that I never would have thought I would have, as much as I loved the conversation, I never thought I would have become a religious professional. I really didn't. Even though when I was young, I wanted to be a priest. I just, I, I didn't think that I would do it, but it all came full circle for me. So I wrote a sermon on that from a non-Christian perspective, but a loving way of interpreting the scripture and the literature, which is what I think, it's something I can give the world. I think it's an, in, I think it's an interesting message to work on loving all wisdom literature and all philosophy and all things that seem that they have something that can be used as a message for goodness. Everything can be used as a weapon too. And so we have to be careful not to take it out of its historical context. We have to be careful not to lose sight of the ways that messages can steamroll others. But there's loving messages in the Christian scriptures and it was nice to see that again in a way. Not be beholden to it, but also not rejected. Let me segue to purely ethics, although in speaking about spirituality, you're certainly talking in and around ethics and what your implicit value of connection to other people and uniting people across political and I assume ethnic and, and other types of divides, national divides. Do you believe in this context that there are any universal rights or wrongs, that there are things that you say are completely wrong across any culture or any history or things that are moral imperatives that are universal rights? It's a good question. And, and again, I, uh, for those who have listened this long, I, Charlie gave me this ahead of time and it was such a big question. I told him I needed to delay this interview. <laughs> and so I actually did a little research, right? I looked up the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Okay, so there are 30 articles. I'm not going to read them all, but I just I just kind of thought, okay, you know, what are these? And it's right to equality, freedom from discrimination, right to life, liberty, personal security, freedom from slavery. I mean, in a way, I go down this list. It's it's hard to really reject any of these things. It's not universal. I mean, if you look at a native tribal community in some area where those communities might still be able to have a, a, a modicum of independence from the, our quote unquote, modern, modern world. Some of those ideas, you know, right to property might not be necessary for them, right? They, their, their idea of property might be so communal that that sort of thing doesn't exist in their mind. So then I did some more digging and I was like, but what's really morality? Okay. So there's, I found this article, University of Oxford, interviewed 600 different sources from 60 different cultures. And they came up with seven moral messages that they feel are universal. And it's help your family, help your group, return favors, be brave, defer to superiors, divide resources fairly, respect others' property. So these are some core morals that they found across 60 cultures and, and they all kind of resonate. You can nitpick, defer to superiors. Well, you know, what does that mean exactly, right? Well, you gotta listen to your parents if they're, on average, we're gonna say that most parents are worth listening to. But of course, like this is not a one, you can't one size fit all these. I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a moralist. 
But I, I'm going to go back to something I've already been indicating throughout this entire conversation that's really interesting to me right now, which is that I feel really strongly at this point in my life, this might change, but I feel really strongly that every single human being I see or come across should be acknowledged. They should be acknowledged, seen. I live in Los Angeles. There's homeless, they're, they're unhoused all over this, this city. And I mean, I would say 50% of the time I pull up to a light as I'm exiting a freeway, there's someone there asking for money. And I keep little snacks in my car. Sometimes I give money. A lot of times I just, I give food. If I see people on the street, I'm going, I can walk to my supermarket. So I'll buy bananas and I'll hand them out on the way back. I know that I can't change their life. When I was young, I was raised with this idea that you're supposed, you know, the biblical idea in the gospel of like Matthew, where you, how does the rich person enter heaven, right? Give everything away. Well, it's impossible to do that. We all know that. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a burden. No one can live up to that standard. I think it's important that religious professionals acknowledge that. Look for a Catholic priest out there that doesn't have a pension, okay? So we have to understand that that's a message and an ideal. We shouldn't let that make us despondent. We shouldn't let that become such a crushing amount of guilt that we can't live up to that, that we stop engaging with the world around us. I challenge myself, even when I don't want to give money or don't have any food, I say hello, or I acknowledge them. Even if I feel a little bad, ugh, I know this is not what you want, but I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to say hello. And what that does for me is that that makes me that much more willing to say hello to someone I don't know on the side of the street. Sometimes it's someone that looks differently than us, dresses differently than us. And I wave, I say hi. They don't always say hi back, but I'm pleased how often people respond in that way. And so from there, I feel like if we're establishing a foundation, or at least I, there's an openness with others. There is a, a push away from this idea of separation from society. I'm, I'm encouraging myself to be connected to others. I'm not subconsciously putting myself above someone by ignoring them, feeling like they're someone that can just be ignored. And from there, then we ask ourselves, okay, well, this says help your family. Number two says help your group. And what the Life You Can Save is talking about is how far can we extend this circle of identity? How far can we extend the circle of identity and care? If we start by understanding that that circle of identity and care is local, that it's your neighbors, it's the unhoused on my corner and beyond, we can also extend that out to the global community. So that's the kind of moral foundation I'm working on right now. And I don't know how that will change or affect me over time, but I think that it's a good way to allow to start having a practicable way of living in the world that then one can extrapolate over time. It's an early foundation to being able to extract a long game of the extension of, of relationship and community. So that's where I'm at. Well, it's really interesting to watch your personal journey over the last 10 years. I have not seen you really close up for a while. Um, and when we last got together, I believe that we were in a restaurant, which wasn't really conducive to doing anything other than drinking and eating really good food. Well, we had our wives um, though, so yeah, that was nice. Yeah. we all, Yeah. That, no, it was really nice. I hear you're connecting people within your community and yourself to community is really critical to you at this stage of life. I always ask people at the end, 
what do you think it means to live a moral life? But I think you've answered that question at this stage of your life for yourself. I think it seems to me that your goal is to connect with people both locally and through the life you can save and other ways internationally and extend the global community of connection in an age of division. I think that's an accurate assessment of the project I'm working on right now. I hope that one of these days in the not too distant future, I will go to church and see you uh, deliver a real live sermon. And I kind of feel like I could write it for you right now if you decide you don't have time to write it for yourself based upon what I've heard today. Send it to me, man. Write it. Yeah, right. I have nothing else to do um, with all my granddaughters and my kids and the life you can save. But <laughs> in my spare time, I will write your next sermon. That sounds fun. I really appreciate your message. I know there are people listening who think in a world of Donald Trump and in a world of Joe Biden, you know, how do I possibly stomach this message? I'm sure that that is a response of some people on both sides of the political spectrum. Not that I locate Joe Biden on the left or even Donald Trump on the right. It's almost hard to classify Donald Trump. And that is partly his intention, I think, and partly just what happens. But I really appreciate listening to what you've said. And I'm really glad that you were able to uh, come on the podcast. And I look forward to many, many more interesting conversations. And perhaps you can be writing a blog really soon. Instead of me writing a sermon, you can write a blog for the life you can save about this journey. I think that'd be great. Um, I'm hoping that people will visit our website at thelifeyoucansave.org and see why you've connected to this organization and how it fits with your extension of uh, the global community. So thank you very much, Nick D'Augusto, for being on the show. And thank you very much for being my friend. Oh, Take thanks, care. Charlie. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to be here with you. I love talking to you. And, and thank you for everything you've given to me over the years. You've helped me articulate some of these thoughts. So I appreciate it. And I just want to say, Take if you go to my website, oh, yeah. you'll see a link to the life you can save. I keep it on my on my podcast website. So, yeah. yeah. Well, can you also give people the podcast? Because some people are going to be interested in listening to your podcast. Can you give it to them again? You know what? The easiest way to do this is go to nicholasdagusto.com. So it's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-D-A-G-O-S-T-O.com. We'll lead you right to the, we'll lead you right to the um, podcast my my main website and you can go there but you can find it on any the the podcast is god and other delicacies and there's no politics in it it's all it's all life death spirit thanks a lot and thanks to all of you for listening have a really good time listening to this and other podcasts and going on your own journey like the one that nick described today take care thank you for listening to this episode of musings about ourselves and other strangers subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.